So, full disclosure, I had never actually seen the lives of others until recently, but I have noticed how many people have said it's one of their favourite films. It makes me wonder how many great movies are actually the quiet ones that slip by, though granted this film did win the Best Picture Oscar, but stay with me on this. As you'll hear me force my point of view on the guys later on in the episode, I couldn't help but draw the parallels between this film and the act of filmmaking itself. Listening to different characters, obsessively controlling them, using them to elicit emotional responses, and even once your interaction with them is relinquished, how they still deeply affected you in some way. Either that or I'm just reading into it way too deeply. You're listening to You Never Forget Your First. Every director's career started somewhere, we find out where. Well, hello. Welcome to You Never Forget Your First. It's a Sunday morning. It's snowing pretty hard outside. I think the weather might be telling us to stay in as well as the government. (laughs) Um, My name is Dom. I'm your host. I don't have a fancy intro for myself, but I do have one for our political correspondent, Louis. (laughs) Hello. (laughs) I should say BBC political correspondent, really. (laughs) Other outlets are available. Analog Man Sparrow. Morning, morning, morning. And our resident European, all the way from Lithuania, who I have to say is a tiny bit hungover and may have <laughs> compiled his hangovers during this lockdown weekend, Benas. <laughs> yes, all into one. Feeling the effects <laughs> now. You consolidate all of your hangovers. You've got, you got to power through. I should have just called you hungover man, <laughs> analog man and political man. <laughs> How is everyone doing? Yeah, Pretty good. Pretty yeah, good. Rough. Yeah. Fresh. And that's the end of the podcast. <laughs> is a legit blizzard going on outside guys this is podcasting weather i would have to say yeah it's remote podcasting weather for sure i think it would be a big test of our commitment to the pod if we were meeting up in person today i was going to say would you guys go through this blizzard to record an episode given that we don't have to i absolutely would yeah (laughs) (laughs) political correspondent louis weighs in on the subject i'm thinking that the hateful eight the hateful eight yeah i have to find a haberdashery to a to get out of the blizzard that hopefully has four microphones and a soundproof setup Mm, yeah yeah. (laughs) i should mention we were covered by film stories magazine in a cover piece as their british independent podcast recommendation of the week i believe was the title you made it um yeah (laughs) i might listen to it then oh yeah yeah (laughs) (laughs) we've broken through the void yeah yeah, as our political correspondent, Louis, um, I feel you should weigh in on this. On well, this it, everyone's been holding their breath about what the announcement would be for this week's <laughs> podcast, and uh, it was a truly, <laughs> truly monumental announcement when uh, when it came out. So, so everyone's flabbergasted. Yeah, it was uh, written up by M from Verbal Diorama, another po- uh, film podcast, um, who also writes for Film Stories magazine. Is that M uh, short for Emily, or is that just M? Like, as in it's code name M from James M, Bond. Like M from James Bond, Bond wrote us up. No, it's, uh, <laughs> I think it's M for Emily, um, okay. but yeah, we were we were pretty honoured to thanks M to be covered, and yeah, that's great. The piece was very well put together, and we will probably be riding the wave of that for the next couple of years. So. <laughs> <laughs> See, it comes in waves. Last time it, we were mentioned in Wikipedia, we had that going for us, and now we have this. So yeah. I have to say, the Wikipedia entry we might have to redo because I think some moderator has gone in and, and cut it out. <laughs> oh, what? He's been like, <laughs> he's been like David Fincher and Steven Spielberg have uh, really big debuts, and then this. No, you never forget your first film <laughs> podcast that covers debuts in Britain. It's like a perfectly relevant mention. <laughs> It's way harder to edit it than it used to be. Like, I remember 10, 15 years ago, you could literally just go on and do 
Do you near enough anything? But now it's kind of police. It, it lasted for about six months on there, and then it someone did. who was moderating the directorial debuts Wikipedia page. <laughs> I don't know who that guy is. Has that um, just all women. Oh. It should be us. I know, right? We should be the ones running it. <laughs> Such injustice. We have a question this week, which I threw to you guys just to see what everyone, what everyone would would throw at it. And the question that I came up with to give to all of you was what actor is due a reconnaissance i was then roasted in the whatsapp chat by benas for explaining what a reconnaissance was so for anyone who doesn't know i did know uh, and and i will get and i'll get roasted on audio as well it is a reference to i think it was coined by matthew mcconaughey himself was it uh uh, yeah apparently in his book green lights he says that he 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 fed it to a reporter and then it it went round. i heard it from it's kind of it's quite nicholas cagey chris nolan because uh, you have to mention Chris Nolan in every podcast episode. Sorry, who's that? Renolissance. He, I first <laughs> first time I heard him mention it. So I don't know. Okay. I mean, your what you just said about McConaughey that actually sounds like it could be true. So yeah, yeah. Well, in it, yeah, when he mentioned that in his book, I was like, yeah, this this I think this adds up. Does <laughs> um, Chris reference himself as the uh, as the reason? Then he's like, it was all due to Interstellar. You have me to thank. He kind of started getting it. Around Mudwater, I think the film was, or Mud. Dallas Buyers. Mud. When was Mud. Dallas yeah. Buyers? Yeah. Was that before Interstellar? I think in- Interstellar was the was the end of the reconnaissance. I think. Uh, yeah, well, I, think I haven't so. even explained what the reconnaissance yeah. even is yet. Basically, it's just a shorthand for when an actor reinvents their career. Presumably, it's it's weird, isn't it? It's someone who seems to be well known at some point, but has then disappeared from the limelight, mm. rather than yeah. necessarily just an unknown actor suddenly becoming big. Yeah. No, because he. He did Mud, and he also did that TV show, True Detective. Um, oh, yeah. That yeah. was just... We know when Benass is really hungover when he can't remember True Detective. <laughs> <laughs> Dude. I feel, I feel Ryan Gosling had a similar thing, because he was in that film The Notebook, which was quite big, and then he seemed to just go off grid for quite a few yeah, years, yeah. and then it was true. like Drive, Place Beyond the Pines. What would you call that? The, That's the Gosling- true. That was, a bit of a, that was a bit of a reconnaissance, wasn't it? Goslingance? Mm. Uh, Although I guess he sort of came back as a similar kind of identity as before. He did Drive, and then only got yeah. Gives and Blade Runner. Yeah, and... that's true. And he did Nice Guys as well, which was a bit of a departure. Crazy Stupid Love. Crazy Stupid Great Love movie. Yeah. Anyway, like the La La Land audition. <laughs> what yeah. What has everyone? Should I Should I kick this off? I, I'm going to kick this off with. I've got a couple of suggestions, but one of them is potentially Matthew McConaughey himself. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say oh, that. Come on, <laughs> because I Wait, like a second reconnaissance. This I, I, think he, I think he's due a second reconnaissance. <laughs> like Interstellar was obviously great, and then since then, I don't know if he's just kind of receded from the limelight because he's had he's had his first run of the reconnaissance. Mm. He's still doing big films though, isn't he? I can't think of any off my head. He well, was maybe, maybe, maybe that's why. He was in yeah. The Gentleman by uh, Guy Ritchie. That, mm. uh, he was pretty decent in that. He wasn't necessarily mm. the main guy in that. Um, mm. But just looking at his IMDb now, he hasn't got much coming out. I was going to say um, Michael Cera. So he was in Superbad, Juno, and Scott Pilgrim. And like, he was quite big in, I guess, the early two- mid 2000s. Yeah, he had that coming of age run. Yeah, he had this, like, that. There was three or four films where he was kind of the main or the second main guy and he still makes films now but like he's just not in the really in the limelight at all that is true he was in quite a lot of iconic movies and then i can't think of anything he's been maybe this is the end was the last film i can remember him i mean he plays robin in the lego batman oh yeah that's true so he's in stuff but just not in the same he seemed to be on like a real trajectory (laughs) come on on, batman let's get grooving (laughs) like he he was going up and up until scott pilgrim and then kind of just yeah he's due i think he's due a, a reconnaissance definitely Hmm. 
I, I had I had a bit of a <laughs> anyone else? I mean, yeah, not knowing what a reconnaissance was, I had a slightly different different take on it. But um, the name I jotted down was Kate Winslet, and hear me out because I think that she's obviously not <laughs> she's she's obviously never lost the limelight. She's a very famous name, and she does sort of crop up here and there. But I think she's a very good actress who doesn't always get great movies. I think she's kind of due a series of films where she gets to kind of show her off her acting chops in a lead role. So, in a way that I don't think I've seen her in really since Revolutionary Road. Steve Steve Jobs? Yeah, she was in that. That's true. She was, she was great good. in Steve Jobs. Good. But I, I guess the reconnaissance is kind of defined as a run of yeah. great movies that kind of throw you into like a couple of different roles, right? I think she's I think she's in Avatar 2, or she's going to she, be in Avatar yeah, 2. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, I don't think that's going to be her <laughs> chance to show off her acting chops. Maybe it will. Isn't that just uh, mocap? She was though. in Eternal Sunshine, which was a great movie, but that's all the way back in 2004. When was Revolutionary Road? 2008. 2008. I think she's a good shout. Yeah. So I think, I, I, yeah, she obviously had a couple of really good parts back then. I think now she's just known for the holiday. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'd say Titanic. 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 No, as in uh, the, over the last like 10 years or so, if someone was going to spontaneously name a movie that Kate Winslet's been in, it would probably be the holiday. I think that's pretty good. I have one more. Rick Monaris, who was in Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, the guy with the glasses. Do you remember him? Yeah. He was like, he was the dad in Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. He kind of was in a lot of like big 90s, a bit like Steve Martin. They were in like loads of sort of big movies and then they, and then I just don't know what happened to him. Mm. But um, I looked on his IMDb and there is another movie coming out called Shrunk with him and i feel like it might be a <laughs> remake like, guys of... you've 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 whipped this horse yeah. enough times <laughs> it's dead now so i wonder if he is gonna yeah come back in the... <laughs> he's gonna have like a reconnaissance but in the same run of films again yeah. remade um, shrunk connaissance i did have one more actually that i jotted down which is a different interpretation of a reconnaissance but daniel craig has been penned as bond for the last what 10 years or so i'm really excited to see what happens next yeah because he did knives out which i thought he was great mm. in and really good. That kind of made me want to see him in more roles. He's yeah. in a girl with dragon tattoo. Obviously, Sparrow's favorite film. Sparrow's one of the faves. Yeah, one of my favorites. And uh, Logan Lucky. Good, good, good actor. I wonder what what happens after people do Bond. Do they do they end up having a big career after? Mamma Mia. <laughs> <laughs> it's probably a massive challenge for an actor to to escape that typecasting, but it, it's obviously yeah. possible. Yeah. I think I saw an interview with him once, and he was like, "Yeah, so now you're typecast as James Bond," and he's like, "Yeah, it's not <laughs> a bad true. problem to have." Yeah. Which is true. It's like first well, world problem. Knives Out too, apparently. So knives out, knives out too. Is there a sequel? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Guns, Guns out. out. Wow. Oh, Sparrow. Oh. Uh, It'd be funny if it was just called like Bazookas Out, and it was a straight to DVD. <laughs> That's the third like, one. <laughs> Fourth yeah, one, Nukes Out. B movie. So this, I can't remember how I stumbled across this, but this is. I'd like to think it's kind of film news, but we'll, we'll see. Obviously, we've all seen Good Time, directed by the Safdie brothers, and in the in that. Benny Safdie is one of the main characters. So it's Rob Patterson and Benny Safdie. Anyway, I wasn't sure whether they'd do any more kind of acting roles, but Benny Safdie um, is, a- is acting in Paul Thomas Anderson's next film, which comes out, That's or is cool. due to come out this year. It's a director directing a current director. We touched on that a bit in the episode with Spike Jones when we talked about him being on Wolf of Wall Street and Moneyball, particularly Wolf of Wall Street, when he's yeah. like oh, yeah. working with Martin Scorsese just to see how he... It's like insider information to see how they direct. That was my, that was my curveball. PTA. I feel like you should, we should do a thing where we have an analogue man section where Sparrow just brings one fact or something that is <laughs> completely related to something analogue. Just out of date news. Did you know that Amazon's going to start making their own movies? <laughs> <laughs> you heard it here first. 
Did you hear that Jeff Bezos is stepping down? But isn't he going from CEO to executive chairman? Which yeah, basically he's kind of pr- doesn't promote himself. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. He's going to focus on his film career. Yeah, he just wants to act in more films. He wants to get cast as the hitman. Or the villain. He just looks like a stereotypical villain. Mainly the bald head. Mm, the bulging eyes. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, shall we get into this week's film? Moving on from Amazon. Nah. Moving on from Amazon. Yeah, should we just call it here? <laughs> this was good. Cheers, guys. Yeah, this week's film is The Lives of Others, which is a 2006 German film directed by Florian von Donnersmark. I feel like in order to uh, make sure that we don't keep butchering his name, I wonder if FVD might be the nice acronym. Are you, aren't you missing out uh, part of the name, though? Actually, you're right. I yeah. should be uh, pronouncing his full name, Florian Henkel von Donnersmark. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But I think the pod will be three hours long if we keep... <laughs> the synopsis for this film is, in 1984 of the... Oh, hang on. I've missed... Okay, that's weird. It just says, in 1984, East Berlin, an agent of the secret police conducting surveillance on a writer and his lover finds himself becoming increasingly absorbed by their lives this is this our first this can't be our first foreign film june film it's my first one wait louis you've never seen a foreign film before (laughs) (laughs) Uh, technically hollywood is foreign (laughs) (laughs) damn thing about foreign films is there's all that there's all that reading it's like I did. I did think you were against watching foreign films at some point, Sparrow. Because it... I don't know why you got that impression. No, I, I swear we had like... a conversation where you said I you don't to like read a watching... book. I would read a book. <laughs> no, one of my favourite films is that now I've got to justify it. Like I love City of Gods. Anyways, back to this film. I mean, back. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but there was actually that big thing about when Parasite won Best Picture, foreign films mm. and subtitles and people. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. People going against people who were saying, "Oh, because you've got to read subtitles," and it's like. Yeah, but it doesn't really make any difference to your watching experience. Anyway, it probably does make some difference to your experience, but... But then imagine people watching, like, a Guy Ritchie movie who don't speak English mm. and reading subtitles and how quick things are said yeah, yeah, yeah. in those movies. <laughs> it's funny, it's I think like, you that would, must be impossible. You would expect it to disrupt... I mean, this is this is like a massive sidetrack and could become a whole different conversation, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but you would expect it to disrupt your experience more than it does. I think you kind of... You, you get Personally, so used I, to it, I don't you? I find that it draws you in more. Yeah. Because you yeah. concentrate more on it. Yeah. You have to focus on so, it. It's a strange paradox where it feels like you're reading the script and watching the film at the same it's like time. Like those those films on Facebook where they show you the scene and then they look at the oh, script yeah, yeah, underneath, yeah. <laughs> and you're like, they got the line wrong. <laughs> the alternative is they dub it, but I don't know. Dubbing's awful. I mean, it can work. Dubbing like, is awful. <laughs> money heist, like, is quite big. Netflix's default setting on foreign TV shows, at least on my Netflix, is is just to dub. You actually have to turn it off when you start a series. They probably know you're not a big reader, Dom. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was like, I'm so offended, but this is helpful. Uh, no, I always have to go in and turn it off, and it's really annoying. But yeah, I, I watched Lupin the other day, which is a French series, and it and it started, and it's this big sweeping shot of Paris, and then uh, I just heard this like, what, mate? <laughs> I was like, what is going on? Anyway, we are getting sidetracked. Back to this film. <laughs> so, Florian Henkel von Donnersmark is probably a director that people haven't heard of, and yet this debut film is bloody fantastic it's extremely strong like for a debut it's like it's also over two hours which is another ballsy move for any debut director because you know usually it's a some sort of coming of age drama mm. at one <laughs> an hour 30 yeah well yeah that scrapes 88 minutes so <laughs> yeah. it can be confirmed by the academy as a feature film <laughs> exactly <laughs> whereas here it's like it's 
obviously the subject is obviously historic and a strong uh strong subject definitely you don't you don't really see those kind of kind of uh debuts it's a bit like ryan coogler doing uh fruitvale station mm. that was another st- mm. very strong one again due, due to topics picked usually picked by first-time directors usually it's like American graffiti or some shit. Yeah, it's interesting you talk about the length. It, it feels like one de- debuts that are long do tend to be quite strong and it feels like it's because the director has really understood mm-hmm. how to tell that story yeah. and what to actually fill it with. Yeah, sometimes you do have those directors that just scrape the money together to kind of make something and that probably can't be like two and a half hours. Yeah, yeah. But with this, you're right, because it's so historic and such a meaty subject, it feels like you do need that time. Yeah, it is interesting, this film. I'd heard from a lot of people very recently, randomly actually, that it was one of their favourite films, if not their favourite film. So I was really intrigued to watch it and it definitely did not disappoint. But what I think is incredible is just, it's it's kind of rare, I feel, to maybe watch a debut where you don't know the director or really any of the actors at all. And yet it delivers this amazing film. It always It feels like... Maybe it's because we're choosing directors mm. on the pod that are just well known, but it feels as if really had no idea who who Florian was or where he came from or who any of these actors are. But when you start researching it, you realise, especially the main actor Ulrich Muir, um, probably butched his name there, but uh, he's a really well known actor in Germany and had done loads of huge films. So yeah, it's it's that interesting thing where these names are bigger in other countries it's just that you might not have heard of them in the country you're in this is a random example but in, for infernal affairs like so what departed was based on like that film is huge hmm. like it's a i think it has like three sequels or some shit but yeah, it does outside it's a hong kong yeah uh, yeah, film. Yeah, yeah yeah it but outside of like in mainstream media or whatever you you don't really hear about it unless Quentin Tarantino or Scorsese kind of brings it up or some shit. So yeah, it's interesting how like you know as Hollywood is the system that we all watch, but you know there's obviously you have Bollywood, you have European cinema, which are just just massive, um, yeah, ma- massive industries on it just by themselves. And it sort of begs the question: What freedoms do the other markets have that Hollywood don't? If you're yeah. making a film, if you're making a film locally, and I guess there's probably less commercial pressure. Is that fair? You probably won't have a studio breathing down your neck. A lot of European countries also have like film funds. Like yeah. they yeah. they actively fund movies. Yeah, exactly. Which I, I don't think the UK since the UK Film Council was abolished. Mm. I, I think the UK had famously not been that great at funding home no. talent. I think it's, which is bizarre. But a lot of these foreign countries, especially Scandinavia, they have the money there you know the means is there to tell these stories which results in films yeah like this although i can't claim to know how this was financed um, to be fair, yeah. i think also, i've heard I've, I've heard that the way one of the things the uk does to f- stimulate the industry is less about homegrown talent and more about production so kind of supporting hollywood production happening here by offering tax breaks that's the big thing usually hence why they come here and film here but also you have the big studios here as well elstree studios so a lot of talent is just naturally just kind of like drawn towards here um but also kind of the budget for this film is like two million right which again is pretty decent lump sum for a debut again um which obviously yeah yeah was highly successful it took two million german marks yeah uh, <laughs> I think I think dollars the equivalent in dollars. If anyone can work that out now and let us know how it's many like German marks it was. <laughs> but yeah, no, it was obviously very highly successful. Yeah, it took seventy-seven million, and yet none of us had seen it before. Yeah, yeah. Where were those seventy-seven million spent? Is the question. <laughs> I was kind of 
intrigued to just understand where this film came from and how it came to be because it is so good and it is on such a big subject of Germany's history and world history really that a good place to start is Florian FVD himself his first short which I, I don't know if you guys saw called Doberman was pretty great it was only four minutes long and we can link to it in the show notes but it's um it apparently put him on the map and went around loads of festival circuits and it's essentially just a guy who kind of antagonizes a doberman dog which then chases him and he sort of gets away from it and the way it's put together and filmed it doesn't sound you know on paper it doesn't sound massively exciting but i just couldn't take my eyes off the screen watching it it was just so well directed you could really feel that there was a a filmmaker behind it yeah i think that was like the first taste of his you know like filmic kind of coming up his parents were from east germany and i think he visited there as a child and sort of said he could feel the fear that people lived in you know the sort of as subjects of the state um but that that is actually what's quite interesting about this is that he's he's not from he wasn't born in east germany i think he was like 16 when the wall was pulled down so a lot of people commented about how, I suppose, how accurate or well-informed the film was being directed by someone who didn't actually have experience mm. of that time period. I think it's also, for for our generation, so people born in the 90s... It's, 90s kids. <laughs> it's amazing how surreal that part of... Well, the, how surreal it feels that that was such a recent part of history, so close to us. I think because things changed so quickly, you know, as mm-hmm. soon as the wall came down, there was this rapid uh, change towards Western capitalism across Europe. That it, it, I think by the time we were kind of conscious of anything, it felt like reading about that sort of stuff felt like ancient history. But it was definitely there. For, uh, it was my birthday a few weeks ago, and um, one of the presents. All right. Yeah, guys, you haven't said happy birthday yet. It's really rude. Um, but. But one of the presents Abby got me was a um, it was an evening standard from the day I was born, so twenty fourth of January nineteen ninety one. Gonna make me tear up. I know, right? <laughs> but so you have all the regular stuff, and you have the you have like second Gulf, well, first Gulf War. You had um, all sorts of things, you know, like whatever things that were going on in British politics. But then you do have quite a lot of mentions of the, you know the remnants of East Germany, basically, because it's mm. just after the war came down. Yeah, it's. I think I've, that's always what astonishes me whenever I read about or see anything to do with the kind of East West German partition. Mm. It's. Um, it feels surreal that it happened so recently. I had the same thing when I was watching it. I was like, I can't believe how recent this was and yet how little I kind of know. And, you know, you think about your parents were alive when when this happened and that makes it more an interesting what... It makes you more intrigued watching it, you know, because you're like, this is a sort of historical film, but it's also telling this story. And so you, you feel you're, you're feel engrossed on a few levels. I was going to say, the, the, well, yeah, the, the main thing... Obviously, it's yeah, two millions a lot higher than um than some of the films we've done, but also a hell of a lot lower than a lot of others. And I didn't um watching it, there was just no like if basically it felt like a lot higher value production than what it was when you compare it to films which are like fifteen million or whatever. I was like, you wouldn't if if you, if I watched that film, then you'd ask you'd ask me to guesstimate the the budget. It would have been a lot higher. Yeah, but one of the things that's just triggered me to do is just do loads of Googling of, you know, just West Germany, the Berlin Wall. The thing that really made me curious was, was the West Berlin thing. It was this sort of island in the middle of um, East Germany. That's right, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, like I said, a very strong debut. And um, yeah, Doberman, the, the short, I, I kind of echo what you say. It's it's surprisingly gripping, even though it essentially it's just a dog chase. But it is really well. I mean, the, the thing that really jumped out to me about that as well is the, um, it sounds stupid, but like if given that it was just probably him and a few few people making it like to get the dog to do what it does 
it's quite it's quite a lot because <laughs> the, the dogs just run around doing like do, i know you just teach to do tricks with biscuits or whatever but the, there's a bit where you know in the car when he's pushing the doberman tapping on the the car where the doberman is there's a shot that cuts to inside the car behind the dog and like the dog looks really aggressive from the outside so it's just yeah you're right like when they cut to inside the car i was like the cameraman's in there with that <laughs> with that thing <laughs> The obvious film that it reminded me of not is, is Tinker Taylor, just because it's that sort of Cold War spy. I know that you know, it's obviously the other side, as it were. Yeah, I don't know. Just I, I really, as always, I'm a sucker for the aesthetic of it. Um, and it, you know, his like I know his flat was bugged and stuff, but just him being a writer in that kind of world, the guy listening in, all the old school equipment. Yeah, I just really liked the vibe of it. And it, and it was um, and I wasn't sure which way it was going to go. So like, was the were the was the writer going to escape? Mm. Was he going to get shot? Get away? The guy going to turn them in? Like there was there was a raft of like options that could have happened. I've got a few thoughts on the kind of free will aspect of this film, which I think is one of the reasons why it's so interesting to continually watch because of that exact reason. You don't quite know where people are going to go and what they're going to do. I wonder if it's worth talking about where the idea for the film came from. There is a crazy connection between Ulrich Muir, who's the main actor, and the story that Florian came up with that wasn't related but ended up being just connected in in some way which is crazy yeah but apparently the idea for the film came from it was he was he was tasked with trying to come up with a scene in a film class i think it was and he said he remembered this quote between uh it was a quote from lenin i think that he remembered that his favorite piece of music was beethoven's appassionata I think it's called. Um, <laughs> he's nodding his head. Our BBC cors- political correspondent allows that. The the quote that he said that apparently he remembered was uh, someone called Maxim Gorky, apparently, who was having a conversation with Lenin, remembered this thing. And he said, and screwing up his eyes and chuckling, Lenin added without mirth, but I can't listen to music often. It affects my nerves. It makes me want to say sweet nothings and pat the heads of people who, living in a filthy hell, can create such beauty. But today we mustn't pat anyone on the head or get our hand bitten off. We've got to hit them on the heads, hit them without mercy, though in the ideal, we are against doing any violence to people. It's a hellishly difficult office. And he said that thinking about that, suddenly he suddenly imagined this image of a man sitting in a darkened grey room with headphones on, listening in to you know his enemy of the state, but hearing this kind of beautiful music that touches him. I think like of all the places that an idea can come from for a first as, as we've kind of discussed over like mm. over 33 episodes now that image is so clear it is so crystal clear and it is the heart of the film that that image and that juxtaposition of this person is meant to be i'm meant to be against this person but i'm being emotionally affected by what they're doing is the heart of the movie and that's the engine that keeps the whole thing going and i thought that was just such an interesting place to have started because i think it would only be an upwards journey from there you know with that with that kind of script and story there's that scene in the film where he's playing the music and he i think there's a i think he says something like um uh the reason why was it lenin couldn't listen to this was he wouldn't be able to finish the revolution if he heard it all the way through yeah 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 um it's a good line the connection of art and the purpose it has you know and the and the, the way it can affect people and should it be stamped out you know, I think is the question that the movie asks to some degree. Yeah, I suppose it's kind of like, um, you know, political idealism at what price, right? That's the that's kind of the moral of the story. One of the things that's really quite sophisticated about this this story is um, is how I think it divi- div- divorces the issue of kind of socialism from the issue of 
a corrupt state. If because if you look at the beginning of the film, you're introduced to a few different characters who are within the establishment, within the Stasi, and within the organization. And the only one among them who is a kind of purist socialist who is purely doing it in order to benefit the USSR and the the GDR, is that what they called it? Um, was what's his name? The guy who the sort of lead yeah, um, surveillance Weisler. Weisler, Weisler. Yeah. Weisler. Um and that's the only reason he's doing it. He's kind of it's sort of alien to him that he would ever do anything to curry favour with people in authority or um get on the good side of the the minister for culture or anything like that. He's purely just doing it because he has that sort of firm belief in his job purpose. Whereas every other character in the establishment is actually much more what we've come to know as the kind of corrupt state of the USSR and the GDR, which is actually the abuse of power. And it's not really any, there's, there's no political idealism left in it. And it's quite interesting that, I don't know, the, 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 the one person who is actually trying to pursue a political ideal rather than just playing politics with people is the person who is also open to the kind of humanity of of um of the opposition of the people that he's trying to kind of trying to prosecute trying to stop which which kind of i don't know that that raises an interesting point to me around how i don't know if you could put yourself into lenin's brain there was kind of romance in there was there was there was kind of romance and positivity and optimism behind the original intention of a socialist future right it wasn't just about power it wasn't just about establishing oneself as the kind of as, as the uh, as the leader among men it was about it was about trying to create a better world but that had been so corrupted by 1986 that it was no longer about that for most people it was just about individual power and currying favor with the powerful because that that becomes the defining difference between Weisler and his kind of colleague they sort of switch don't they because he's quite Weisler's quite like he's actually the original guy that that says Dreyer is it who's the artist who is a uh, Georg Dreyman um he's the one who says you know we should survey him this puts him under surveillance even though his his uh his friend actually says Grubitz that's the guy's name says to not but then obviously they kind of switch yeah places throughout the film I mean it's quite telling that it's quite telling at the beginning when you're introduced to uh, Weisner in the classroom where he's explaining why he has to put people he has to horribly interrogate people he doesn't say enemy of the state he says enemy of socialism like he, he I think he's got this alliance to the, the the idealism and I think in a way he has more in common with the artists that he's, surveil that he's surveilling than you might originally think because it's all about I think he's got this dream of a better world and everything he does is trying to kind of, you know, trying to reach that. But he sort of realises throughout the film that that's not the side he's fighting for, that the people he's fighting for are actually completely corrupt. Like there's a bit where he goes and he's about to tell his boss what he's found out about the the article, remember? And then yeah. the boss has that, um, there's that scene where he kind of talks about the five types of artists and how, um, you know this is what we do to them to kill art and he sort of has a realization yeah. there that he's not working for a kind of utopian socialist future he's actually just working to further the careers of horrible men um ben Asler looks completely hung over <laughs> with this heavy political <laughs> chat yeah no, i'm just letting you guys do your thing i uh i, I love the cross-cutting at the start of the film was something that i thought was such a genius idea you know how it cross cuts between the classroom where he's yeah. explaining how he's doing this and the actual interrogation that's going on. I just thought for a film, for a film that I imagine the challenge was, uh, and I believe actually Ulrich, who is the main actor, uh, Weisler, actually said this to Florian before they started filming was 
how do you, how are you going to make someone sitting in a room with headphones on interesting as a film mm. and that is actually one of the ways because a lot a large majority of the latter part of the film is that i think the way that it starts is just so interesting like we always talk about this with debuts especially it's like make the first 15 minutes of the film gripping and people are going to stick with it afterwards wherever you go and that i just thought that cross-cutting was so genius so well edited the way that you kind of were fed information through the the different scenes they're taking place in different timelines um and the way that he kind of comments and pauses the recording and then plays it and then you go back into what it was i just thought that was it was very sophisticated and i think sparrow and i were talking the other day and sparrow said something which i think is so true is that this just doesn't feel like a first film yeah this feels like a fifth film very mature yeah it's like it's incredible to think that that's a first time director who's so confident in their direction and storytelling that they're able to go right from the off we're going to cut timelines already i was impressed (laughs) i was i was impressed one one thing i was i was this is more kind of a just a question to the floor and it might be that i I missed something or it's just deliberately open-ended but so obviously at the end one the other stasi officers like grubitz the the yeah he's yeah he's he's like i know it i know it was you like i can't prove it you were clever you covered your tracks and stuff but i just know it was you and then and then in light of that he gets him kind of chucked out into the mailroom and stuff but but it's like if he knew it was Mm. him on on essentially a hunch but he was so confident that he actually got ruined the guy's kind of career i was just like were there any like clues that i i've missed or was it just purely a hunch because like it's got to be quite a big hunch if you're going to like end a guy's career when you've got no proof. He does say, I, I smell a writer behind this text, doesn't he? When they're talking at that at that, that turning point. Yeah, it's tricky. You, you wonder whether or not the Stasi methods that they were using on people, they were also effectively using on each other to, to suss each other well, out. Well, that's a real, yeah. Um, I mean, have you ever seen Death of Stalin? The Iannucci yeah. film. Deals yeah. with this. It deals with this exact same issue, but in a completely different way, right? It, it's all. It's it's kind of dark comedy. Yeah, the tone of that film looks quite yeah, different. Yeah, it's a dark comedy, <laughs> but but, but it's it's kind of the the darkness of it is exactly the same theme, which is that you're not. It wasn't just kind of one way surveillance of the state on the people. It was it was the culture of surveillance that were kind of cross contaminated everybody, right? So no matter where you were in society, at what level, you weren't safe because everybody was kind of encouraged to surveil everybody else and all you needed was suspicion to as as long as there was suspicion you weren't safe and you could be accused Mm. that does actually it's a fair point that spire raises around i don't know possibly the believability maybe of the of that ending in that if um if a senior stasi officer had enough suspicion of somebody to ruin their career I, I'm fairly sure they could have prosecuted them successfully. I don't think I don't think the lack of a typewriter would have meant that he he would you know I don't know get off get off from from Spoilers, the accusation. God. <laughs> yeah, and so you sort of think he could easily have just executed him. Probably. I've meant I've talked about it a few times and not actually gone into detail, but this the Ulrich Muir, this main actor, I'm but- butchering this pronunciation. I know I am, um, but I thought what was probably one of the most fascinating pieces of research that i've like seen in in debuts is just this crazy thing about how this actor um ulrich he he is a big actor in germany but actually when the wall fell down and prior to the wall falling down he was obviously an artist because he's an actor within within germany and he was actually surveyed by the stasi himself so when he was coming up as a, as an artist and and he actually um he had suspicion that his girlfriend 
was monitoring him through through the Stasi, and they had apparently there was a big public court battle i'm not sure what what the end of that was but uh, i think maybe the stasi agent apparently came out and said that he'd made up a lot of stuff that his girlfriend had fed to him so there was all this backstory to it essentially like he actually had his own stasi files on himself that he brought to a meeting with um fvd and they had this whole conversation where he said how are you going to make this film because you know i've i've experienced some of this in in real life like what's your angle what's your what's your way of doing it and yeah it's just interesting like you know the flip there because he he then plays a stasi officer bringing humanity to that role and that character and just an emotion i think um which we'll get on to through his acting um, when he was being kind of surveyed by his girlfriend or or not or it was was he an actor at that point or did he ever do oh, okay right so, yeah he was i mean you know an actor's our artist so he was yeah he was that um if he was, the, he, he was, he was like in the that position he was a huge actor and to get as, as far as i understand to get him in your debut was quite a feat but because he read the script and loved it um he said he i think he took a pay cut and was like you know look i know you don't have a distributor i know you don't have like money but i like this and i'm gonna you know push behind it and make it work yeah i think what's uh there was a thing where he was asked how did you prepare for the role and he just said i remembered yeah that comes back to the point really of it not really being history it's living memory for a lot of germans yeah it adds another layer to a film Mm. that as a filmmaker you you really want that emotional intimacy that is is real in a way you raise an interesting point about humanizing the system which is that i think one of the original things that i saw in this film it feels it feels like well-trodden territory to see the stasi versus the people right and you kind of see the system full of evil horrible auto machine type people against the kind of the lovely uh, subjected people but there is a kind of thread of hope in this film because the sort of guardian angel is actually within the ranks of the Stasi. And that's quite a novel take on it. And it, and I suppose in a way that makes you th- sort of think about why it was sort of always doomed to failure. Because, you you know, as long as you have humans operating it, you open yourself up to humanity <laughs> in the way and you, you can't completely shut out empathy. It's like when that, that it's like that point where the, the guy, that one character makes a joke against the system and then the, the guy kind of has that head fuck with it. But that, again, that kind of furthers that point. It's like not everyone who works there particularly yeah. wants to do it's it. It's like an inglorious but... bastard scene that <laughs> where Christoph Waltz yeah. sort of says, tell me about your family. Yeah. Did you notice that he was in the mail room behind yeah. him at the end? The, the <laughs> yeah. same guy. Yeah. Yeah. I love that scene because like you, you as a viewer, you're, and this is another big thing. I think subtext in this film is, is the real reason that I think this really worked. And as a viewer in that scene, you're like, you're laughing along and then you're not because you're sort of being told off, but then you're laughing again, but then you're like not laughing because you're like, oh, hang on, this guy's actually going to get, <laughs> is he? I don't know. And it's like all this kind of questioning that, and it's like, and there's always a subtext to every scene, isn't there in this yeah. film, but virtually every scene, there is always this you're not really saying what you're saying. You're not really acting how you should be acting. And that just makes for such an interesting watch for an but audience. But it also shines a light on a, on a really um, dark and maybe maybe slightly misunderstood um, side to life in East Germany, which is that you don't see any executions in this film. Uh, you don't see any police brutality in this film. You don't see any torture, really, in this film. You see, the worst thing you see is questioning. extended questioning, yeah, which is obviously horrible. But it sort of shows that the evil that that causes is actually kind of secondary. It's not just a simple thing of violence against the people. It's creating an environment where people take their own lives or 
an environment where art can't happen because people just stop writing because they're too scared of the repercussions. It makes you makes you think about the the kind of secondary effects of a police state. That is the one criticism of this film that's that that I'm not even sure we'll be able to answer, but it that it showed the the Stasi to be less brutal than maybe they were in real life and it, it's hard to know where the line is but what one thing that you said about humanizing them which i thought was interesting was they wanted to film a scene at the memorial of the victims of the sazi that was where they wanted to, to do a scene and the director of the memorial said you can't film here because your film is making a hero of these characters and flora apparently fvd said you know we'll look at schindler's list they've managed to make a, a film that takes on this kind of subject but in a way that's quite positive and the director said yeah but that's Schindler that's that's someone you don't have a Schindler here you have a, a Stasi officer the boldness to add humanity to that to that role kind of link it links with this Ulrich actor because apparently he did a he did a speech when the wall fell down to like millions of people so he was there the whole thing which is just nuts because like the way that he's connected to this film, even though he was not part of the writing process, as far as I understand, is kind of fascinating that they landed in a similar territory. Apparently, during his speech, he did say, like, you know, all of this turmoil that's going on, all this bad stuff, we should try and make something good of it. Mm. And it feels like that's imbued in his performance. I think also here. you have to try and understand it. I think um, part of understanding history is exploring the complexity of it. And that means not just writing it all off as, e as evil as you know pure good or pure evil and people seem people are happy to do that when you go back far enough in history so if you start looking at the dissolution of the monasteries or i guess even something like the russian revolution people are happy no one's got skin in the game really anymore so everyone's kind of happy to say all right well there was humanity on both sides i can sort of understand what that motivation was for this individual person who was kind of doing this or whatever and i think when you get into living memory though that's understandably very raw and to say anything other than it was just evil it was just wrong it feels like you're kind of then upsetting somebody right because they suffered horribly as a result of it mm. um but what this film does start to do i think it does it really well actually is kind of show both the the pure evil that did exist within the stasi regime but also the the humanity within it that meant it was doomed to failure i mean it opens up by saying what was it like 200,000 people were working for the Stasi organization and it says their one goal to, to know everything that was and I thought that was quite a good line to put at the start exactly but then at first so, so at first you sort of see that number and you kind of conjure up images of 200,000 robots who are all programmed to be to do evil and uh, surveil everyone and um, you know keep everyone under subjugation but then the film shows you just one person's story one of the 200,000 who was who rejected that philosophy because he had some humanity in him and i think you have to then leave the film making the judgment that he wasn't the only one that two hundred thousand people include people who are going to see it from the other side on the di on the kind of uh directing choices i think what's so interesting about weisler as a character an actor is that he really doesn't have a lot of lines in the film like he's not it's not a speaking part, it's a listening part. And a lot of his acting is in his face. I was reading that when they were making the film, Ulrich, the guy who plays Weisler, had to keep watching the screen. He had to go back and watch it because he wasn't convinced. He thought he should be giving it more of a performance. And FVD was like, no, this is about your interior monologue, you know, your interior mm. acting. 
we 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 know what's going on as the audience we know where what people are doing or or what you know or we uh, we know things that they don't like we know the apartment's bugged but we know that the character doesn't we don't need the kind of overacting to kind of get that across and so yeah it was it was really interesting just to to just to see such a successful performance in what is very minimal act even in his face really it's quite minimal mm. acting especially when he's got to do when he has those fork in the road moments where it's like should i type down what they're actually doing mm. or should i lie and it's like and it obviously he doesn't say anything it's just like you just see him thinking the cogs turning and then obviously he makes a decision cogs turning is a good way to put it he was quite sort of he was quite robotic in his movements wasn't he like when he was unsure whether to write something he sort of yeah it didn't it didn't play up those moments and actually the way the score was used, i thought the score was incredible but it was used so sparingly throughout the film um it was used in moments where it really mattered which i I just thought was such a great directing choice because it would have been quite easy to have put the score over every single moment where he sort of questions what what he's doing but it was really used in 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 scenes that it mattered in which i think is just the sign of a filmmaker that knows what they're doing His, his his whole story and his whole life the kind of hollowness of his life in that he has no no partner no friends no like you know what he eats for dinner is tomato paste with rice what it looks like or he has absolutely no intimacy whatsoever with people that's also sort of telling a bigger picture of what this type of society leads to it's like if if, to be truly compliant and safe in this society you have to you have to have nothing that could weaken you right or nothing that could demonstrate your human flaws or your your, you know any kind of color in your life whatsoever speaking of color um, a lot of this palette seemed a bit like dull and grey and kind of muted. Mm. So, especially his performance, Earl Rick's performance, it, it, like you said, it is very muted because and kind of robotic because, you know, the state doesn't allow for expressionism or anything like that. As soon as you do that, you kind of, you kind of end up in the mailroom like the guy that was telling the joke, you know. And he, as soon as he expressed laughter at, at the expense of of the state i suppose um yeah he was he wasn't fired but he was definitely you know his career was definitely over um and this kind of thing when louis say, is saying this kind of hollow existence essentially when the war went came down these people kind of had no purpose anymore because their whole life was about serving the state and serving so touch on at the yeah. end that isn't it so the whole thing of like you know, prosecute, prosecute, prosecuting him on a hunch or not, I think it's worse even to kind of just dump him in the mailroom. Yeah. Because his whole existence was like, I want to serve, I want to serve the state. Yeah. And now, you know, you can't do it. So hence the whole thing about suicide as well there. Did anyone else think it was interesting how he went from being a, an, an agent that kind of steals information to being a mailman that delivers information? I thought that was Oh no, he was still stealing. Yeah. It was a steam. So the steam room is where they. No, no. What? What? But at the end, when he becomes, oh. you know, he's becomes oh, a mailman, just posting. Le- yeah, yeah. He's just he's like become a, oh, a mailman posting that. letters, because um, he he goes and posts loads of different letters. You know, he goes from yeah, building yeah, to building yeah. with that thing because he's just posting. Yeah, <laughs> I just thought it was an interesting flip, like that he goes from stealing it to kind of delivering it to people. It almost feels like he goes from doing the wrong <laughs> thing to the to the right. Maybe he's thing. still looking at the letters in his <laughs> in his home. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> all damage yeah. die hard. It, we should i can't believe i mentioned this but it, it was written by by fed so mm. the that merging of his point of view of it and the directing kind of resulted in quite a singular 
vision for the film. You know, like the, one of my favorite scenes is in with the kid in the lift mm. with the ball. Oh, yeah. When he's like, what's the name of your yeah, yeah. ball? <laughs> <laughs> the kid's like, that's a weird question to answer. <laughs> and it's like, Terry's that kind of kid's, kid's blatant observation in there. It's like the perfect character co- to kind of use for that scene because it's like kids will just say what, what is on their mind. Is the turning point, isn't it? Because that's the first scene where you're like, he doesn't. Oh, maybe yeah. he's not all yeah. bad. Yeah, fork in the road. It's just yeah. so. It's in a lift. It's so. There's no music. It's. It's not. It's not the Hollywood moment. But yet, it is the Hollywood moment. You know. He comes around to the kind of the humanity of it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's in that. It's in that. Yeah. It's like the, the kid's completely oblivious that in that one incident in the lift could destroy his own life because obviously, if he gives the name of his dad, then it's game over. But the fact it's a kid means he also won't get told on as well. The theatre correspondent in the room. Um, a shout out to a very famous play. <laughs> what, and this, what is actually, this is going back to my uh, <laughs> my French A level, no less. But Albert Camus. Have you ever heard of a? a a uh, play called Les Justes. I think that's why you're the theatre correspondent. Yeah. Well, it's so it's a play about um, I think it's three revolutionaries in the Russian re- set set during the Russian Revolution um, or even earlier. I think like 1905 or something. And um, they are plotting to assassinate a, a kind of archduke or a grand duke or something who's you know to try and bring down the regime. And the whole play actually takes place around this kind of fierce debate that starts around whether the, whether the end justifies the means. I think, I'm trying to remember it now, but I think that, what, spoiler alert, I think that what they kind of learn quite early on is that in order to achieve their aims, they'll have to kill innocent people. Uh, and, th- and that will have to include women and children and all that kind of stuff. And so this big debate kind of rages and you, you start to see it built around these two characters, one of whom is uh, an absolute zealot for the cause and thinks that whatever, whatever we have to do, including killing innocent people to get there, is justified because there is a higher purpose of achieving this kind of utopia that socialism will bring and then on the other hand you have this other character I can't his name but he's he's much more of a poet interestingly he's an artist who is just as dedicated to the cause of creating this utopian future but thinks that if you have to if you have to do certain things to get there you have to wade through evil to get there then you've totally lost the ideal already so there's no point in doing it right and it's, it's it raises this really interesting point about what you ha- what you're willing to do in order to actually achieve an end that you think is just and it yeah i think that's 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 a that's a theme that comes up often whenever you i don't know whenever you look at uh films that 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 deal with the you know the, the systems in the 20th century that that were really trying to kind of change the world for the better at their most basic purpose but ended up doing all sorts of horrible evil as a result it makes me think of the one of the lines in the film when he says uh he kind of covers for Draymond when he says, like, just this once, my friend, to himself, which I thought was such mm. a great... He doesn't really say many lines to himself in that thing, but that it's such a great kind of reveal of character and in that sense of what you're talking about, you know, like, he sort of invents his own way of coming at the problem a bit, but it doesn't quite fit with what everyone else's expectation of the you know, of the regime no, exactly. is. I mean, it's it's just it always just has to come back to this point of you, you. This many people don't do that sort of thing without believing that it's actually for for a good a good cause. And that's I think that's quite key to um Weissner's character. He is he is genuinely driven by the zeal of thinking that he's making the world a better place, and mm. has to come to terms with the fact that that's no longer that's no longer true, or at least that it's not worth it's the end that don't justify the means. It's not worth 
doing too this much to to get there i guess it segues into the end a bit i I thought the last line of the film when he says no it's it's for me with the book was just so well done and he sort of gets his own he gets his own ending in a way doesn't he he gets sort of what he i suppose was after i really had no idea how this was going to end not many films kind of grip you until the last couple minutes you know a lot of times we sort of check out 20 minutes before because we're like well we know what's going to happen like we're here for the ride rather than the destination but if you can sort of do both of them which is what this film did so well kind of take you into that bookshop moment at the end where it just feels like it kind of all culminates in this like emotional sort of ending and it i think it it ties in i think what ben has said earlier is is interesting like how it was shot and how gray it was and how there was like such a loss of humanity in, in the color of the image but the way it was put together like if so on paper if you're like this is a surveillance film which which it certainly just isn't as a as a one definition but you expect to have like the cameras in weird corners the people tapping the microphones there's none of that like extra it's a quiet film you know it's like and the ending is so quiet (laughs) like it's just in a bookshop apart from when the um the guy cracks a champagne (laughs) (laughs) that was such a little easter egg (laughs) did it did you notice the name of the bookshop the name of big wide shot of establishing where the bookshop is the Karl Marx bookshop. And I don't know, maybe I'm over-interpreting it, but I do think it's another nod to this idea that the irony that in the kind of capitalist world that, that Berlin has now become, Karl Marx is kind of, you know, can be revered and sort of acknowledged for the sort of positive things that he did without the kind of oppression of the state. So the fact that... So you the, think that was putting that there on purpose? Yeah, absolutely. The fact that... The fact that well, yeah, it can't be a coincidence. Yeah, yeah. the yeah, fact that he, the fact that he was. finds the book that kind of vindicates his um, his actions against the state that was set up in the name of Karl Marx in the Karl Marx bookshop that existed in in a capitalist Berlin. I don't know. I think that's a really interesting point there about like actually there is there is kind of remnants of good in that thinking without um outside of the kind of the horrors of the Stasi state. Yeah, the the attention to detail in this film is quite absurd yeah. like there's another but you know when grubitz his mm. friend is sort of interrogating him about what he's doing the chair that he sits on doesn't have cloth on mm. and they've yeah. set up no. this idea that you know the cloth is there to for the to keep for the dogs to have scent basically if you have suspicion of someone you would have the cloth on the chair and then you would but the cloth isn't there when weiser sits down to suggest mm. that maybe grubitz doesn't have suspicion enough yet that is interesting because one of the things i've read i'm sure you guys have talked about that that seems to kind of separate the stasi is basically the whole thing was one big head fuck so they wouldn't necessarily they might go into your flat and just move some furniture a little bit so like it's not obvious but it's kind of like you're second guessing yourself and like that sort of thing like so if you're being interrogated they'd have cloth but there's no cloth so presumably i'm not being interrogated right, yeah 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 presumably i mean it, that's that's shown to some degree by draymond thinking that his flat hasn't been bugged yeah and that whole scene where he says, you know, check, check. And it's your... like 1994 or something by then. Light yeah. switches. And the level of detail of all these wires, you know, and the intricate places that they're that they're put in. I was going to say is another thing, just just jumping back on the um his kind of facial acting or, or the directing style. And so that, yeah, there's that one line where he he says like, just this one time, my friend. But it's like they could it could have been because it's mainly him just sitting in a room with a typewriter. 
it could have easily had loads of like dialogue to himself is like oh not sure about you could have just said stuff aloud and it would have i think it really would have cheapened it whereas obviously what they do is that there's there's the odd line they're used sparingly it raises that point where it's like you may well have someone who's financing the film or above you be like no we must put lines into this scene and it's like the the jump to make is that like by not doing it you are asking the audience to fill in the blanks and therefore you are becoming more engaged Mm -hmm. with the film because you're going yeah maybe he says just i mean just this once my friend was such a short line but it was so well delivered it said so much about his character uh you know in a couple of words that you almost don't need to have all those other lines, but I think a lesser filmmaker would have been had, I'm sure, loads of loads of rushes where people would have been saying stuff. It would have been an easy trap to fall into, I think. I mean, the fact that they made it work when a lot of the film is him just listening in. I, know, on I yeah. mean, a lot of the film is just what we're doing on Squadcast right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, pretty much. But you the know, it's tonight. like it's it's yeah. so. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, we've actually done two films back to back. People that are listening kind of to think, yeah. audio, audio yeah. based, haven't we? Even minor characters in the film are treated with that level of intricacy. Like we we talked about the mm-hmm. joke in the cafeteria. Um, that's you know that one character appears in the mailroom briefly at the end, but that that he is a minor character. But it's that scene is treated with such you know the same importance as every other scene in the film. It's like so well put together and shot. And you know even the woman who um, who's looking through her keyhole. Yeah. The and then, you know, it's like, then she has this dilemma where it's like, should, does she say anything because her daughter's university place might get revoked? And then later on, when she's helping him do his tie, she's sort of admittedly like, I just want to get out of here. I don't want to be a part of this. And it's like, it's these, you know, there's an importance of the minor characters that is just, it adds that texture to the film that makes it real. Yeah. It kind of scales the fear as well. It doesn't, it doesn't make it feel like um, they're just investigating a select few people who have to fear the state. It sort of gives you this sense that everybody's, even if they're not directly under investigation themselves, everyone's driven by fear and suspicion. I found it so unnerving how, uh, how empty the streets were in all the shots. Yeah, yeah. Like there is just no one around at, at, at any point. There's a really funny... Well, funny, but really dark bit in The Death of Stalin. Towards the beginning, actually, where they sort of go out on their nightly run. So this, uh, yeah, so basically it's like the, the secret police kind of come and they get a list of um, of all the dip- all the people that they're going to sort of disturb that night. There's no reason why, there's no accusation. They just basically say, yeah, go get these and bring them in. And it's right. such a kind of, you get a sense of the routineness of it. It's like every night we put a load of people on a list and then we kind of go and knock on doors in the middle of the night, drag them out in their pajamas and line them up against a wall and then start interrogating them, you know, for the next few days. And I think yeah. um, that gives you the sense of how everybody going to bed wondered whether that was the night that they were going to get out and knock on their door. And I think that's has a similar, mm. that's what the, the kind of empty streets have us give you a similar effect of in this film, right? Where you just sort of think everybody's cowering inside, kind of waiting to be brought in. I think that's what the DP said. He said that when they, when they remember, what when they have, talked about how they were going to approach the film he said everything just took place inside like everything was indoors you know and if it was outdoors it was at a memorial or somewhere where it was very sort of open so you could have a private conversation to some degree and when you're outside everything feels very purposeful like i'm just going to the shop i'm just going you know there's no kind of you can't just loiter because you basically just get asked like what what are you doing i think i've mentioned this a few times with a couple of debuts and it might just i feel like every time i talk about it it might just be complete looking into stuff the wrong way but 
I do feel like with a lot of debuts, there is this connection to the act of filmmaking. There's a kind of commentary on filmmaking, and I don't, I don't think it was intentional here. I just thought it was worth mentioning that there's a light, like there's a likeness to how him listening in to these characters. You know, a lot of writers talk about how they sort of listen to their characters, right? There's like a certain level of some people approach writing like that, and the characters kind of talk, and then they come up with these storylines, but just the way that he's listening to people and then sort of actively nudging their lives in certain ways to get a result that he wants. There's a likeness to kind of directing there, writing, yeah. directing and filmmaking in that you're sort of controlling the lives and, and the outcome, the emotional outcome of what you want the scene to be. I just thought there was an, it was a kind of an interesting connection there. Absolutely. Uh, Cause you have obviously with films as director leading and stuff, but the scene that comes up right now in my head when you mentioned it is uh, the one, the one where he's um, crossing the wires oh, yeah. to get the, the bell, doorbell, yeah. and and that's how he 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 kind of obviously finds out about her her I don't know, cheating on him or whatever. But uh, yeah, uh, this complete outcome uh, outcome of distrust, like he can't just no one kind of trusts him. Yeah. He actually says like time for some truth my friend or something yeah yeah he... some bit of truth or some stuff that's such a great scene that's a really good example that it's like elicit the outcome that you want yeah no yeah it's not it's not he's not directly it's, it's it's the nudge it's the kind of subtle nudging the guys yeah almost pull it subtly pulling the strings uh, i don't know if anyone else saw but it was quite sad uh, uruk muir died the year after this was um no i didn't know that stomach ulcers stomach ulcer. yeah Blimey. or cancer yeah he passed away and um there was an article recently with FVD remembering him and sort of reminiscing about the other roles that this would have taken him on to because this ended up winning the best uh, foreign language film at the Oscars, right? In 2007, I think it must have been. If it was a 2000, more well, maybe 2006, if it was a 2006 film. Pretty strong year, <laughs> by the way, for, the, for that. There was Pan's Labyrinth was in there. Really? But apparently, Guillermo del Toro and, and FVD both said, you know, if you win... I would be happy to lose to you kind of thing back like back sure and forth. Um, <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> you have it. Um, but, you totally deserve uh, it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. W w won the Oscar and it was nominated for like 11 German film awards, which is like Germany, I think is one of the biggest kind of awarding things in, in Germany. So it was, it, it got, it really didn't go under the radar as a film when it came out. It definitely had that, recognition but there there's a video of yeah. from the oscars and you can see ulrich sitting there when it's announced and he just looks so different to how he does in the film like he just looks so frail um so it's really yeah, sad, it sad but uh yeah such an amazing role and all of these actors must have relished the opportunity to act in this film because the roles for everyone whether you were minor character or on screen a lot it just felt like everyone had a character behind them and everyone had a role and then he and then he went so then the next film he directed was uh, the tourist yeah so he went on to do the tourist with johnny depp and angelina jolie which was quite a different type of film to the lives of others i would say it maybe was a sort of hollywood production and yeah and then the film he's done after that which is called never look away is strangely around the similar topic of the lives of others um i think it's a bigger story in scope kind of following like i think it's nazi germany then uh, then the events after that 
and then event, events after the wall. So, is it still surveillance based, or is it? I'm sure it's a part of it, but I don't think the story is revol- revolves around that. It's just um, back towards like Germany's history, and uh, by all accounts, that that was quite liked. Um, but there's massive gaps between these films. I mean, he's only done three films, and there was just huge gaps between all of them. But yeah, the Taurus stands out as quite a different movie if it doesn't feel the movie that you would do after doing the oscar winning <laughs> german i guess yeah yeah it's just it's quite hollywood it, isn't it? i mean it's as hollywood as it gets is it in venice yeah certain like venice city um i didn't like it <laughs> it was mm. as hollywood as it gets so considering that he did the obviously his debut as um lots of others others um this is kind of like I don't know. I, I imagine his agent was just like, "You gotta go big. You gotta go big on the next." You're so one. hot right now, <laughs> and you know, it, it, this was it, yeah, it, exactly. Picked, I think he picked from it was eleven months from mm. rewriting the script to it being premiered. Yeah, that, so that was the time he had. So that that you know, Johnny Depp is obviously doing his Johnny Depp thing, which is weird. <laughs> just kind of like just being an eccentric as always. <laughs> Interesting that he wrote the script, though. I didn't know you wrote the screenplay as well as directing it. I now want to watch it. It did go down quite well with, with some people. Um, I mean, it was successful. Like, big yeah. film. You, you yeah, wonder no. how many other doors it might have opened afterwards, but it just it was so long between these movies. Like, it, it, you know, the, I think it was like eight years or something after The Tourist, right? Yeah, it's, 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 Tourist was 2010. Never Look Away was, 2000, was 2018. And Lives of Others is 2006. So you're talking like over five years. What the fuck does he do? Eight years is a, eight years is a surprising break after the tourist because that was you know, like it or hate it it was you know successful so you'd it would open some I doors you think I mean, but I remember it being slated pretty hard. I think the 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 never look away which is the the film he did afterwards which is a sort of return to to Germany that the synopsis for that is German artist Kurt Benert has escaped East Germany and now lives in West Germany but is tormented by his childhood under the Nazis and the GDR regime. So it is a similar... Sounds like a sequel. Yeah, it's a similar topic, but from what I can understand, it's a film with a much larger scope than the lives of others. Yeah, it's interesting to, to return back to that kind of arena, so to speak. question is, what's next? It's. Uh... I'm intrigued. Probably another six years of nothing. Well, yeah, yeah, it might be 2025 before we get another film by him. Sounds like he's due him a connaissance. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's not so bad. What would you? Brings what would you what's the director equivalent of the McConaughey? I'm trying to think of someone. Michael Bay. It's got to be. It's got to be. It's got to be Malik. Surely, he had 20 years off. That's true. I would take Malik. I would say maybe Michael Bay because he does all flash and stuff, and then he did that film Thirteen Hours, which was surprisingly good. So no one, ex- no one expects him to do much good, but he can do it. Adam Adam McKay like had a. I mean, he was still doing films, yeah. but he had that kind of shift into slightly more serious ones with Big Short and Vice. FED and Malik might be trying to outdo each other for the amount of time that they can go without directing a film. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Malik doing Scary. 20 years is just crazy. Yeah, yeah. Interesting to see what he does next. I mean, if it's as if it's as good as the lives of others, I'm there for it because this debut was just absolutely fantastic. And I, I don't know if we will ever do another debut that is this unknown in terms of like not that the film is unknown but unknown in terms of like actors you know the involved the people who are involved making it and yet is so good i i, I don't know we'll have i guess we'll be able to answer that over the next number of episodes this is kind of a silly like i feel it's i feel this film is is reasonably well known with people who actually really appreciate film like but people who have kind of yeah. not really that much interest in it but would never have heard of it um is so it is, so it is known in like 
it is reasonably well known, but just not as I don't know, not like Get Out or something. I, I actually watched a I watched a news coverage that came out after the film was released about the law that was passed in Germany for people to request the files of surveillance that was on them. I I thought it was quite interesting in the film when he went and requested for the file. I had no idea that you could do that yeah. in real life. Um, and, and and it was all there still as well. You know, you'd think it might have been destroyed. So interestingly, I can't remember what they called it, but they said it was a memorial and research centre or a memorial and archive or something. And it reveals a lot about the way that Germany memorialises this period of history. It's not just a case of remembering. It's sort of a case of trying to make amends by making all of that available to people. Not to hammer the, the metaphor of filmmaking, but like the fact that it's almost like a script for your life, right? Like, I mean, it's literally a, you keep it's going literally on about a it. script. I mean, <laughs> cool. yeah. Good film. Well, solid effort. Yeah, really great film. And really we'll have to see what FED does next. It might be, it might, <laughs> it might be another 10 years and we might just be out of the pandemic by that point. A little final, final fun fact. I mentioned this to Dom. I think this guy gets the award for the tallest director we've done. He's six foot eight and a half. Wow! Yeah, that the man's a beast. That is tall. <laughs> and that's the end then, of the podcast. That. Is the end of the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, no, that that actually is the end of the podcast. Yeah. All right, guys. Well, it is goodbye from Analog Man, Sparrow. See you guys. It is goodbye from Hungover Man, <laughs> Benner. See ya. And it is goodbye Have from. Politics man, <laughs> Louis. Bye bye now. Uh, and it's goodbye from Doberman. Longest goodbye ever. Bye bye. Bye bye.